how would Churchill defend himself today? Um, you know, in 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 in, in based on, on 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 your thesis, professor. In other words, um, how, what, what's the reason he would say today? I, I I could not. I had to delay the invasion. The Americans were not correct. It would not have worked. It would have, the cost would have been too much. My plan, you know, was was the was the better plan. How would he defend himself? He would defend it by saying, that, of course, you know, what his chief of staff, uh, Lord Ismay, said to George C. Marshall, the great American um, general. Mm-hmm. Um, they, were, they, they were totally influenced by the first thing of the Battle of the Somme, in which something like 57,000 British casualties, one of the worst days ever in the history of the British Army. And Churchill was convinced that if you invaded Europe too soon, you would have another Battle of the Somme. And it was the, it was the shadow of the Somme and the shadow of tens of thousands of innocent people, you know, young, young men dying. I mean, one of my, I'm related by marriage to somebody who died on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Mm. He was about 22 years old, you know. You know, and he's there with thousands. I mean, when you go to the Somme battlefield, you know, it's a very sobering thing because so many of them died, and they're all aged about 20 and 21, you know. And that, that nightmare um, was there. Also, of course, Churchill was a historian, and one of the things that Britain did was Britain didn't, Britain's tradition was the indirect approach. And this was the approach. I mean, if you basically, his great ancestor, John Duke of Marlborough, there are very few British troops actually at Blenheim. I mean, what happened was, what, what basically happened was that John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, was commanding an allied army. And it was an army with British troops in it, but a lot of Germans, a lot of Dutch, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was a coalition army. And so the great thing is that what the British had was the Royal Navy, and then they would ally with a powerful European neighbour who would do the heavy lifting in terms of the fighting on the ground in continental Europe. And of course, the thing that, with that and of course in 1914, the Great War, the British Expeditionary Force was minuscule to start off with. It was only subsequently, with the attrition rate and things like the Battle of the Somme, that Britain had a huge continental army. Uh, until then, it was you know, the Royal Navy did, did, did look after the rest of the world, you know, and blockades and trade routes, you know, and, and then you know you, your powerful ally did all the all the um, continental heavy lifting. But of course, the key thing was that in May 1940, May June 1940, the French were defeated, so we didn't have a continental ally, and so consequently, the whole the whole of British policy, you know, going back to Marlborough his great ancestor, about whom he was right, he'd written the biography during the 1930s, was there wasn't one. Now, the Americans thought, you know, the policy was, you go straight for the jugular, you go straight for the big arm. Who is your number one enemy? You know, Germany. So you don't mess around fighting in Italy, you know, fighting or fighting in North Africa. You, you know, where are the, where is the enemy? It's North, where, where do you get rid of Germany? Where do you invade Northwest Europe? You invade France? And that's, that's how you're going to rid of the main army. So the Americans are thinking in terms of, you know, what is, you know, how, you know, how to conquer the main enemy as soon as possible. Whereas the Churchill, the, the British policy was always the, what's called this, this indirect approach. But, you, you know, it was supposed to go back to the Duke of Marlborough. It was supposed to go back to the 18th century. But, of course, what he didn't realise, the irony is that he realised that America would change the war. But what he didn't understand was that America could bring to bear armies of a size that, were in, that was impossible for the United Kingdom. I mean, the, the, the British couldn't possibly have an army of the size of the, Amer- the Americans finally brought to Northwest Europe. And the great thing about the Americans, you could fight a two-front war. So you could fight in the Pacific, and you can fight in Northwest Europe. So you could fight a military war in Northwest 
atmosphere and could fight with the Marines and the US Navy in the Pacific. And, and the Americans had the ability to do this. But for Churchill, this was all completely new because the, the Americans hadn't really done this before. Um, not, I mean, not really in that sense, even in the, in the First World War, because they came so, so very near the end. And so the Churchill's defense was you fight, in, you fight your enemy indirectly and you don't, and he, and he also was very, like all the Germans. Generals of the First World War, generals of the Second World War were survivors of the trenches of the First World War. Yes. And one of the things that horrified them was the casualty rate. And of course, there were far fewer casualties, British casualties, in the Second World War than the First. You look at war memorials in Britain, masses of names on the First World War, very few, hardly any, hardly very few names on the Second World War. And that's because, you know, we, we, we didn't have anything like the trenches. And ironically, one of the few places we did have uh, fighting like the trenches was in Italy, where my uncle fought. And there you were fighting you know, the equivalent of trench warfare because you were fighting mountains, because the Germans could defend the mountains, central mountains of Italy. And so the only place you did have you know, battle on the Somme things was uh, trying to rescue, trying to fight Monte Cassino, which was a war in which, mm-hmm. which my uncle fought, you know, where it had a huge attrition rate among the Allies. Um, and it took a long time to get, to get the Germans out of there. Um, and, and that was, of course, Churchill, very much Churchill's war, because he thought that Italy was the soft underbelly of Germany. I mean, it was complete nonsense. It's much easier fighting even in the Bocage of Normandy than it was fighting in Italy. And Churchill, Churchill, the historian, therefore failed to see that the nature of warfare had changed. Interesting. Well, let, 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 let's skip forward um, a, a number of years. The war is over. Um, the conservatives lose power. And now Churchill is the head of the opposition um, between 45 and 51 uh, when he gets back into power. Um, and those are the years, of course, uh, you know, right after the war. Um, and now we're looking at Palestine and the nascent um, Israeli uh, state coming into being. Um, the what if of history, what if Churchill had been Prime Minister continued to be Prime Minister during those years. Do you oh. think you think it would have been a different a, a different world today, a different creation of the state of Israel? Oh, it would. I mean, it's Israel because he would have been pro-Israeli from the start. I mean, you know, he was overtly a Zionist, but he called himself a Zionist. I mean, it's fascinating seeing his correspondence with Chaim Weizmann. You know, I mean, he you know, he actually uses the word about himself that he's a Zionist. And the interesting thing is that Churchill, he was calling himself a Zionist. He became interested in Zionism, sympathetic Zionism, before the First World War, because he was a, a briefly an MP for an area of Manchester in the north, northwest of England, and of course it had a large Jewish population. So he was meeting very able Jews with whom he got on extraordinarily well from you know the you know the Edwardian period, and he never lost that sense of philo-Semitism, and that was what was unusual about him. I mean, you know, people think how wicked he was to be. And you know, to be racist towards Indians and Africans, he was completely racist towards Indians and Africans, which is why his statue is now in trouble, of course. But so was the whole ruling class. I mean, there was really very few people who were pro-Indian or pro-African, but a lot of them were not. I mean, not necessarily violently anti-Semitic, but it was a sort of you know upper crust. This, you know, you, you don't have Jewish friends. Whereas, how, how, do you, how do you think that would have manifested itself in, in British policy in, you know, 46, 47? Oh, he would have wanted to make sure the Jewish state came into being and he would have wanted to defend it. And so he would have wanted, you know, I mean, we could have, you know, he could have, you know, it would have been defended properly with weapons supplies 
and, and he would have been there defending because Israel was part, I mean, was his creation. I mean, you know, Israel, people talk about all sorts about 1948, but the key thing is that, but for the battle, it's not just the Balfour Declaration in 1917 that set up the of Israel, it was Churchill's colonial secretary created the mandates that separated mm. what is now Jordan with what is now Israel. And the amount of, and the areas of Jewish settlement would be predominantly Jewish settlement and the areas that would be predominantly Arab settlement. And therefore, Israel is actually Churchill's creation. I and mean, this is the key, this is the thing that people forgot. This is one of the things I say in my, I mean, book, Churchill's Folly, you know, because, you know, I mean, the book Churchill's Folly is actually about the creation of, of Iraq, because that's the one bit that's left out. But if you read about his history, him as colonial secretary, I mean, he, he, he is responsible for Israel. Because he actually put into practice what Balfour promised in 19, Lord, Lord Rothschild in 1917. It was, it was actually Churchill's create, Churchill made it happen. Along with, in fact, it's not Lawrence of Arabia, of course, but actually, that's a, my only, um, I, my only sort of, not what it was called, ebook um, from the Ashes of War, is how it's actually the British troops, British and Australian troops on the Lord Allenby, they were the people who liberated the Middle East. I mean, they were the people from the Ottoman East. Empire. From the Ottoman Empire. So actually, it's the British who, who created it. I mean, you know, so, and that's why, because of Lord Allenby, Jerusalem, under the, Sykes, the infamous Sykes Picot Agreement, Jerusalem was going to be an international zone city. But because the British under Allenby had, con- they were the ones who liberated Jerusalem, Churchill was concerned, you know, Jerusalem was going to be in the British Palestine, Palestinian mandate. And consequently, it's, Al- it's Allenby's only, and then Churchill's colonial secretary, who are directly responsible for Israel existing. So that's why the creation of Israel really goes back to 1917 to 1921. It was enabled by the British Army, and then created by Churchill, who was, you know, and to have a philo-Semitic colonial secretary, making sure that the Jews got the promised land that they had been promised in 1917. He guaranteed it, and therefore he would have guaranteed it in 1946 to 48, because it's, it was his creation. And when he wouldn't have been messing around with, you know, saying being nice to Arabs, you know, or something like that, you know, I mean, he would have been with Israel 100% of the way, because he, you know, and this is obvious from his correspondence with Weizmann, you know, and, and, other, and, and he continued to be an Israeli, pro-Israeli and pro-Zionist to his dying day. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, you, the letters to Weizmann going well into the 1950s, you know, the correspondence, they were friends, and the correspondence continued. And this is what's so fascinating, and he would have been very, so yes, so, you know, Israel would have probably had bigger borders, you know, and, and had a much better guarantee of safety, you know, in a way that wouldn't have happened, um, didn't happen under the Labour government. You, you, had, you had mentioned, um, you know, the Churchill statutes, um, and I know that in, I had read that in June, um, there was the statute in the uh, Parliament Square that was boarded up, they wanted to put it into a museum, and and uh, Churchill's granddaughter, Emma Soames, is quoted to saying, we've come to this place where history is viewed only entirely through the prism of the present. Do, well, do, you, think that, do you think there's any credibility to, you know, to, to questioning and, you know, and, and considering taking down statutes of I- iconic <laughs> figures, well, flawed, flawed uh, as they well, are, like Churchill? 
Well, I also learned a bit different because my wife was actually from Richmond, Virginia. And in, the, in Richmond, Virginia, in Monument Avenue, they had all the statues of the Confederate generals. And of course, right. they weren't actually put up at the time. They were put up in the 19, I think, you know, 1910s, 1920s. I can't remember the exact dates. Right. But they were put up by totally racist Virginians, white Virginians, saying, ha, you know, you think you lost, we lost the Civil War. But no, we didn't, you know. Um, but that's and that's the problem um, in you know, with, with the statues in America. They're not, they're not if they've been put up, you know, in 1865 or something. Then you you, know, you could say, well, it's, it's, it's history. But it's the purpose for which the American statues in my wife's hometown were put up. And she was actually brought up as a child in Lexington, Virginia, which is where Washington and Lee University is named after, of course, two slave owners, George Washington and Robert E. Lee. Right. And, but and, you know, but of course, Churchill's different. Because, I mean, these, Churchill was that was put up not as a sort of symbol of white oppression. Churchill was put up because he's the man who rescued us from Hitler in 1940. And so the rationale for the putting up the Churchill statue is very different from the rationale of putting up the statues to slave owners, you know, and Confederate generals in the United States. It's, it's, it's a tribute to what he did, to the good side, to the genius, if you like, 